When we share someone's story here on The Diaries, the episode might end, but their story doesn't. So many of the people we've talked to, they've gone on to do incredible things. They have epic adventures and make significant impacts in our community. Over on Diaries Plus, we're catching up with some of our former guests to see what they've been up to. I recently sat down with Connor Ryan, a Lakota professional skier from our Sacred Slopes episode, who's been knocking out groundbreaking projects ever since the episode aired. It's really incredible. We had a great discussion about the impacts he's made, what keeps his fire burning, and taking ski lessons as a pro skier. Here's a snippet of the conversation. All the source of joy that I use to fill my cup to be out in the world doing positive things comes from my relationship to the outdoors. And so I really focused on like, wow, like there's so much power if I can give one person the relationship to the outdoors that that I have through skiing. And maybe that will have as profound of an effect on them as it's had on me. To listen to the full episode, use the link in the show notes to subscribe to Diaries Plus today. Yeah, you get more shows, but you also have a peace of mind of powering what's out there right now, keeping us moving forward, keeping this community together. So thank you for everyone who supported and everyone who's going to support. We appreciate it. All right. So Fitz, a couple of months ago, a letter pinged into your email inbox and you sent it to all of us because it was pretty unique. Can you describe yeah. what that letter looked like? Oh, totally. Yeah. So it wasn't actually a letter. It was actually, I got forwarded a Google Doc that I was BCC'd on. And it had the simple black logo at the top that said Midwest Mountaineering. And then a letter, like there was a note that preceded it. And the first thing I noticed is that there was a bunch of people reading it, you know, because you can see other people on Google Docs. It'll be like anonymous chipmunk and stuff like that. And there's like <laughs> a ton of people on this letter reading it. Can you read it for us? Uh, yeah, it says, to the editor, more than 50 years ago, I founded Midwest Mountaineering, Minneapolis's original outdoor store. And since the doors first opened, we've estimated that more than 2 million transactions have connected people to the right gear, the best apparel, and the latest knowledge for enjoying an active outdoor lifestyle. This year, however, I am looking to make a change. I want to hire my future replacement. They'll be trained on the ins and outs of this unique business, and then they'll hopefully be given ownership of the store. I'm 73, in good physical condition, and still enjoy my active involvement in the store's day-to-day business. But someday, that will have to come to an end. I want to find a person who can run Midwest Mountaineering for the next 50 years. Someone who truly understands that it's not about how much you sell or how much money you make. It's about getting people outdoors. So you you sent that to us and you were like, hey, we got to reach out to this guy. Totally. Yeah, because there's a lot of stories going on in here. Um, you know, one, we, we've covered local gear shops in the past. Um, and there was a time when stores like Midwest Mountaineering, um, Neptune Mountaineering, places like Feathered Friends, they were the beating heart of the outdoor world. These shops were selling gear, but more importantly, they were bringing an idea to the greater culture that the natural world could be reimagined into a place of fun, learning, self-discovery, and community, rather that something needed to be tamed, exploited, or endured as part of labor. Like basically these stores 30, 40 years ago, they were they were reimagining recreation in America. Mm-hmm. And today, you know, we have large retailers 
they're all just imitating that local gear shop to some degree of success. Like they're all just an imitation of that. Mm-hmm. And, and two, like no one gets out of this alive, right? And if you're a person that spent your life building something and you want it to live beyond you, you have to figure a way to step aside. And if your business is more to you than just a bottom line, it's a really hard thing to do. Well, today we bring you the epic journey of Midwest mountaineering, how it started, the bumps along the way, and what it takes to pass off an entire ethos to the next generation. I'm Fitzka Hall. I'm Cordelia Zars. And you're listening to The Dirtbag Diaries. So to get started, Fitz and I headed onto the internet to get a pulse on this store, Midwest Mountaineering. So we started by checking out their Google reviews. What do you got, Fitz? There's like 590 good reviews and like one bad review, which says a lot. There's this one from from Maya Carter. Midwest Mountaineering is a beautiful, caring company and a staple of the Twin Cities. Everyone who works here is genuine, helpful, and crazy knowledgeable. The company and owner really care about the community as well. Yeah, there's a line from John Blaylock's best place for outdoor gear in the Twin Cities. Staff knows their stuff because they live what they sell. Kevin Kim says, visited the store for the first time a couple days ago, and I was blown away in caps lock by how helpful and patient everybody was. I also reached out to some of Midwest Mountaineering's longtime customers to hear what they had to say. Here's David Olson. Midwest Mountaineering is one of those few outdoor specialty stores that if you go in there, you know where you're at because there's nothing else like it. And so between that and the staff and the selection, it's just always been sort of my neighborhood store. Midwest Mountaineering is a store that I grew up going to with my family um, when we were sort of looking for outdoor equipment or advice on adventures. And it kind of became the staple place for us to go when, when I was a kid. That was David Olson and Sonia Ellingson. You know, if I didn't already own a business, I might be typing up my cover letter right now. Yeah, for real. They clearly have built like a world, you know, somewhere people come back to you over and over again. It's a place that people remember. Yeah, it's like almost it seems like it's almost like a third space. Yeah, exactly. Like clearly Midwest Mountaineering is an experience, except it's not a climbing gym or a brewery. It's a retail store. I have a lot of questions. Well, we reached out to Rod Johnson, who's the founder and owner of Midwest Mountaineering. We caught him on Zoom up at his cabin in the North Woods of Minnesota. My name is Rod Johnson. I started uh, uh, Midwest Mountaineering 51 years ago in my kitchen. Uh, has an outgrowth of my desires to get gear for myself for wholesale. In the late 1960s, Rod was a college student. 
He was studying chemistry at the University of Minnesota's Institute of Technology in Minneapolis. And I had completed just about all of my courses uh, to get my degree, uh, except then I decided I didn't want to be a chemist. See, Rod had just discovered a deep love of climbing. He palled around with the other members of the U of M Rovers, which was an outdoors club. We traveled all over climbing. I think the first uh, thing we did was we did an ascent of Devil's Tower in Wyoming. And then we went and climbed uh, Gannett Peak, also in Wyoming. The more time he spent adventuring, the harder it became for Rod to glue himself to a desk. I, I like things with a little more adrenaline in them than sitting around filing lab reports. The, the reason I thought chemistry would be fun is I had a chemistry set in my basement when I was a kid, and I had all kinds of wonderful things. Clouds of smoke would come uh, up the stairway from the basement and horrendous smells and big flashes of light, and it was really fun, but uh, a real chemist doesn't get to have fun like that. But instead of resigning himself to an adrenaline-free career, Rod pulled the plug on the chemistry route and headed for the open spaces. Once he dropped out of classes, he filled his days climbing, backpacking, canoeing, exploring the many wonderful treasures of the Midwest. But as Rod's adventures accumulated, so did the pile of gear in his living room. And he was running out of funds. I couldn't afford the gear, so I went and got it wholesale by getting dealerships. And there wasn't anyone else selling gear in Minneapolis at the time, so it was easy for me to get dealerships. He contacted the Chenard Company in Ventura and ordered gear for his trips straight from the source. Pitons, carabiners, climbing ropes, boots, coats, sleeping bags. Soon, Rod's climbing buddies were jealously asking where he'd scored all the booty. So logically, Rod decided to fill the gap in the Minnesota gear market by setting up a shop in his kitchen. Well, it was a pegboard on the wall. And then some of the bigger things, like a backpack or a climbing rope, I had to have on the floor below the pegboard. So I would have pitons and carabiners and, and maybe a couple of stoves. There were some uh, climbing friends I had that I associated with a lot in the University of Minnesota Rovers. And one of them was a cab driver, and he had come over and picked me up, and I'd have a backpack full of climbing gear, and he had taken me to the University of Minnesota Rovers meetings. And then I would sell gear out of my backpack to the people at the meeting. And, and some of them would come over to my, my kitchen and, and buy gear. Rod didn't have enough volume to turn a profit, but he felt great about outfitting his friends and colleagues with climbing gear for their adventures. He wasn't in it for the money. He just wanted to help people get outside. I definitely did not want to become a businessman. But word started to get out about Rod's kitchen shop. His taxi-driving friend began shuttling students back and forth between Rod's house and campus. Other friends would walk across town to come buy a rope in pitons. Soon, Rod found himself making more calls to dealerships to fill the demand. I remember uh, I had asked for a Camp Trails dealership and they were gonna come out and check out my space. And just the day before they came out, I hung a shingle out on the front door uh, made from an old door panel with some black paint on it, saying the Johnson Company. My last name is Johnson, so it started out as a John the Johnson Company because my dad had some stationery that said the Johnson Company on it. And just like that, Rod was in business. 
After a few months of selling gear as the Johnson Company, Rod headed out on a low-budget trip around the world in 1970. And I had got down to South America uh, doing a bunch of hitchhiking and third-class transportation. And I was on a riverboat on the Amazon River. And the Amazon River is a huge river. It's, you could see the, the banks about a mile away to the left and to the right. But it was very boring just seeing this green line day after day. Staring down the slow-moving river for hours, Rod had a lot of time to think. So I decided I wanted to do something with my life, and I would come home and move out of my kitchen and open up a storefront. I should get some commercial space and start selling gear, because that's what I already was doing. I just wasn't doing it on a large enough scale to make a living. So that's what I did. I I jumped off and ended my trip around the world uh, from Iquitos, Peru, and got a low-budget flight uh, to Miami for $90, and then hitchhiked back up to Minneapolis. When he got home... Rod scanned through the newspaper for commercial space rentals. He discovered a second-floor space available on Hennepin Avenue for $65 a month. So I went and talked to the owner, and I I said, well, I'm probably going to be crashing here some nights. Is that a problem? And he said, oh, no, that's not a problem. And I said, well, since I'm just getting started and don't have much money, uh, for the, the, the first few months, could I just pay $50 a month? And he said that was okay. So Rod unscrewed the pegboard from his kitchen wall, bundled up the climbing ropes and backpacks, and moved to his new location on Hennepin. To consolidate costs for housing and retail, Rod dragged in a single mattress and plopped it down behind the partial wall at the back of his shop. He plugged in a hot plate for a kitchen and was off with the races. The company that really made it all work was uh, Patagonia, uh, which was then uh, the Chouinard uh, company. And they made a few pieces of apparel, but mostly they just had climbing hardware. And what I did was I went to California with my backpack and filled it with 100 pounds of climbing gear, then hitchhiked back, which I would never do again. It was a lot of work to save the freight on 100 pounds of climbing gear. In order to put it on, I would take the pack, it was a frame pack, and put it uh, between my knee and my hip. And then I would put my arm through it and and hoist it up. Uh, And with 100 pounds uh, hitting my leg there, my leg actually got bruised (laughs) because the pack was so heavy. When he arrived back in Minneapolis with all the new gear, Rod got to work formalizing his business. He changed the name from the Johnson Company to Midwest Mountaineering, opened a checking account, and arranged his 100 pounds of climbing gear on the shop floor and walls. He put a few ads in the newspaper and on the local radio station. And gradually, customers started trickling in. So Fitz, can you give us some context about like what the outdoor industry in general looked like at this point? Yeah, so like at that stage, you know, the outdoor industry really does not exist like we know it today. Um, mm-hmm. You know, most if you were into outdoor stuff, you would typically go and shop at an army, army, navy surplus store. You know, where you were kind of getting this sort of extra gear from the military. A lot of times, it was heavy. It certainly wasn't cutting edge, um, but it but it worked. And that's that's kind of where you went. But the same point is like, if you were a climber, um, or, or just a lot of other things, Europe was kind of ahead of us. And so mm-hmm. there was this point where 
basically people were starting to import gear, particularly climbing gear from from Europe. Um, these shops, they sort of were at the vanguard of a cultural movement. There's a lot of things happening. There's back to the land. There's, um, you know, the envir- the environmental movement is, is kind of picking up steam. There's a really big fascination with spending time in nature at that period of time. And so all of a sudden, these stores are presenting that idea to their communities. And the, the communities are also interested in it. So it's sort of this feedback cycle that really takes off at that moment. Mm-hmm. I imagine, too, being in the Midwest, Rod was... You know, he had a little bit more of an uphill slope to get people yeah. interested in gear, just because. I mean, there's less climbing there probably than totally. The mountain, there's not there's not a lot of mountaineering in the yeah. Midwest. There's some climbing, but there's not uh-huh. a lot of mountaineering. And yeah, uh-huh. it is, but it's it's powerful, right? And there's a ton of awesome ways to spend time outside in the Midwest. So mm-hmm. you know, it makes sense on a level, but it is kind of crazy that it's that it was sort of at its heart a mountaineering store. Well, here's Rod again to explain just how he got things started. So basically, uh, I had to get merchandise in and sell enough of it to pay the wholesale cost before the bills came due, which was like 60 to 90 days. So it was a very, very tough way to uh, run a retail operation. The first month, my sales were $50, but then the second month, they were $200, and then the next month, $500. And it just kept exponentially uh, multiplying the sales. And if a, a bill was becoming due and I didn't have enough money to pay for it, I would have a sale and put like everything in the store 15% off. And that would allow enough extra sales to pay for the bills. And that is a very, very difficult way to do business. Basically, no, no equity and no assets and, and, and no credit. And that's kind of always been my way of doing business is I I just do it one step at a time. You put one foot in front of the other and and handle the problems as they come up and, and solve them as they come up without a lot of advanced planning. After a day in the shop, Rod would close the front door, warm up a can of food on his hot plate and settle onto his mattress in the corner. (laughs) And that's where I lived. And it did have a toilet. Although if I wanted a shower, I had to go to the University of Minnesota and use their shower. Uh, There was a day-old bread store that was a a couple blocks away where I could get very inexpensive food. It was a good lifestyle. And with his hot plate and his mattress surrounded by climbing gear, Rod felt more at home than he ever had in a lab coat. He settled into a rhythm, buying gear, earning the trust of new customers, keeping track of transactions— The first month of business flew by. Though he wasn't turning any profit, Rod was able to pay for his gear bills, rent, and day-old bread. What more does a guy need? In his time off, which he took whenever he wanted, he headed out with friends to explore nearby crags, rivers, and trails. There are a lot of local spots of like one-pitch climbs that are mostly done top roping uh, in the Twin Cities vicinity. Uh, Taylor's Falls is like about an hour away, and there's some excellent climbing there. Well, one of the big complaints that people had was when they would come, I was off climbing or taking a shower or something or another. So I wasn't there all the time. So I had to hire employees. 
And of course, I didn't have any money to hire employees with. So the, the first employee was Bob Richardson, and he was kind of more like a partner that I didn't pay him wages, but he was going to have half the profits. But when Bob learned that Midwest Mountaineering was yet to see any profit, Rod's shiny promise faded. So uh, he got tired of that in short order and and just left me to run it myself. But I, I, the minimum wage in those days was like $2.85 an hour or something. So it was easy enough to hire some people to watch the store while I went off uh, climbing and took a shower and doing other necessary tasks. Although then the guys that uh, were working for me were also climbers, and they wanted to go climbing with me. So we had to hire more people to work so to fill in for us. Like when we went to climb Denali, which was in like uh, 1973, that was most of the uh, store. So we had to hire a bunch of extra employees to run the store while we went off and climbed Denali. Quickly, Rod's staff, a squad of dirtbags, all passionate about expanding outdoor access, formed a tight community. Rod wanted everyone he employed to be the real deal and only hired experienced outdoors people to work the store. I think people like to shop at Midwest Mountaineering because of the expert staff. Our motto is ask us, we've been there. You know, we can give people advice because we've actually done it ourselves. A lot of customers just love our store. Because they can come in and they can talk to people that are passionate about the outdoors and uh, really get great advice so uh, they can have more fun outdoors themselves. And as well as being an expert staff, true to dirtbag form, they also got up to some shenanigans. I got a complaint from the bar across the street that my employees were mooning as customers. So I talked to my staff about it. And they said that the people were calling from the bar and offering free beer if, if the staff would moon them. Midwest Mountaineering had been in business for a couple years when an REI set up shop in the Twin Cities. And they began creeping in on Rod's command of the Midwestern gear market. As it was, Rod was barely staying afloat. After five years we finally turned a profit, a fairly large profit. I mean, I didn't really have any money because we hadn't made a profit previously. So I put everything into inventory. So I couldn't pay my taxes. So I sent in my tax statement and I just didn't send in a check for it. So the the, uh, IRS ended up seizing the money out of our checking account. So I had to have a sale and sell a bunch of gear quickly in order to cover the checks that bounced when the IRS seized the money out of our checking account. (laughs) So things, things were kind of tough in those days. So even as he celebrated his first year of profit in 1975, Midwest Mountaineering seemed to be hanging on by a thread. And now with all the new competition in town, the future of Rod's business looked very uncertain. I asked Rod if, with his back against the ropes, he ever considered pulling the plug on his business. Oh, that thought has never occurred to me. 
Uh, not only that, but it's never occurred to me that I actually have a job where I have to work. It's just what I do. Well, what I'm doing is I'm helping people get outdoors, and which is nothing but good. If more people were outdoors more, we'd have a better world. More after a break. Support for the Diaries comes from Ketone IQ. As I've been getting more and more into longer runs and bike rides, I found myself fighting with my mind. As the miles extend, I feel like my reactions get slower and I make more mistakes, like tripping or falling or just kind of feeling slightly out of sync descending on the bike. On those big days, I've been using Ketone IQ to help my brain keep fueled and sharp. I want to have fun, not bonk. Here's the science. Ketones already exist in your body. When you push up against your boundaries, your body begins to convert stored fat into ketones, which your brain prefers consuming. With Ketone IQ, I feed my brain so my muscles can use the glucose I get from whatever else I eat on the trail. Riders of the Tour de France have been taking the same approach. I am definitely not as fast, but I can apply the same thinking. Give it a try. You save 30% off your first subscription order at ketone.com backslash dirtbag diaries once again that's ketone.com backslash dirtbag diaries the link is in the show notes please check it out in 1976 a community college bought out the building rod was renting they needed to tear it down to make a parking lot so rod found another rental location and moved midwest mountaineering to the west bank of the university which was a few miles away from the original location After the IRS seized funds out of his checking account, Rod felt desperate to get some new customers in the door. But it was a chicken-and-the-egg situation. He needed to up his profit, but didn't have enough money to buy new inventory to boost sales. But then, something surprising happened. The president of the bank across the street came over and surprised me by saying, you know, I was a long-haired hippie, uh, that if I wanted to borrow some money, I should come over and talk to him. So I couldn't believe that someone would actually lend me some money. So I went over and borrowed $50,000, and then Midwest Mountain really started growing fast after that. With new wind in his sails, Rod got to work. The building they just moved into needed some love, and shelves needed stocking. I got a bunch of friends together. We call ourselves Donkey Construction, and we did the rehab on the space that had been vacant for 12 years. After the facelift, Rod used the remaining money from his loan to go gangbusters buying gear. We went into cross-country skiing and backpacking, uh, down jackets, sleeping bags, uh, and we even started selling whitewater kayaks. And then we started selling canoes. Rod divided the two levels of his store into retail, downstairs, and upstairs, something called Thrifty Outfitters. And Thrifty Outfitters is where they specialize in rep samples, like Patagonia, Mountain Hardware, Marmot, Piranha. The reps have all these samples. They're all in sample sizes, and they have to get rid of them every year when they get new merchandise. So we buy them for half of wholesale and sell them for half of retail. So being able to get, you know, brand new Patagonia merchandise in the latest models for half price is a really great deal. And so that's what Thrifty Outfitters does upstairs. 
With a few more ads in the paper and word-of-mouth whispers circulating around the Twin Cities, sales at Midwest Mountaineering suddenly jumped to a million dollars a year. Outdoors people from across the Midwest dropped in to outfit their next adventure. College and grad students looking for a good deal would paw through the discount bins upstairs and leave victorious when they found their size. Staff helped people plan and map their excursions and gave expert advice on weather conditions, secret camping spots, and gear choices. Midwest Mountaineering had something for everybody. Even with the REI nearby, Rod's sales continued to balloon. He couldn't believe it. So it's a really tough competition, although uh, one customer was overheard in the parking lot saying, well, Midwest Mountaineering is like REI, but they're local. And I think that the fact that we're local has really helped us a lot. Plus the fact that we have really experienced sales staff and we can custom fit a pack or footwear or whatever better than anyone else can. More corporate outdoors stores continued to open in St. Paul and Minneapolis. They bought out local shops and put others out of business. Camping World was around. They, they bought out Rock Creek and Erewhon and Uncle Dan's, and they offered to buy Midwest Mountaineering too, but I, I was definitely not interested. It's not the money that I'm in business for. I'm in business to help people get outdoors. Determined to stay small in an increasingly corporate industry, Rod worked harder than ever to offer top-notch gear and customer service. And his work and authenticity paid off. Sales skyrocketed, and a loyal community orbited around his store. Soon, Rod began to dream up ways to offer even more than gear at Midwest Mountaineering. After a massive amount of planning, Rod and his staff began mounting outdoor adventure expos in 1985. He poured thousands and thousands of dollars into renting circus tents, buying food and drinks, and booking a huge array of exhibitors to present on various outdoor activities for his customers. The, the major feature of the expo is probably paddle sports and backpacking. So we'll have a lot of backpacking and paddle sport programs, getting ready for canoeing up in the Boundary Waters canoe area, programs like that. Through the years, he also planned screenings of Real Rock and Banff Festival films in the campus auditorium across the street. And all of this, from the presentations to the food to the film screenings, free and open to the public. Seemed like a big financial risk to me. I asked Rod if he felt like there were any parallels between something like lead climbing and putting on an outdoor expo for the first time. Yes, there are definitely parallels. Uh, For instance, if you're doing a a hard lead climb and you fall, you could get hurt very badly. If you're putting on an outdoor adventure expo, you know, they they cost like over $100,000 to put on. And if you don't have enough sales to cover it, then you're going to lose a lot of money. So that's a very big financial risk, putting on something like an outdoor adventure expo. In terms of getting the word out about his new event, Rod stood by his old school ways. I think mostly word of mouth has been our, our best advertising over all 51 years. I've, I've always kind of resented giving a lot of advertising dollars to the big uh, media companies. We had no idea if they'd be successful or not. So it was a pretty big risk. But then when tons of people t- turn up and they're having lots of fun and they're kind of hanging out with other outdoor people, 
it creates an outdoor community around your business, a Midwest mountaineering outdoor community. And belonging to an outdoor community makes you want to get outdoors more because you're, you're hanging around with people that uh, you're, not, you're not the only one that likes to get out there. There's lots of people that you're hanging around with that are gathered together that like to get outdoors. So I think it goes a long way into getting people active outdoors. Needless to say, the first outdoor expo was a big hit and a great success for Midwest mountaineering. So Rod has continued the tradition of mounting outdoor expos twice a year since 1985. And now, after 51 years of selling gear and 30 years of offering community building presentations, activities, programs, and beer, you can imagine what a tight family Midwest mountaineering has become. Cord, I think it's worth circling back to where we started at the beginning of the story. Rod's getting older. Um, the business is a lot of work, and he's looking to transition into retirement sometime soon. And that letter we received marked a huge change for Midwest mountaineering and mm-hmm. really in Rod's life. Mm-hmm, totally. Because Rod still wants to be involved, but just not have so much work on his plate every week. My plan is to just stay involved for the rest of my life. And then to see Midwest Mountaineering uh, continue under a, a new general manager uh, after I'm no longer around. And Rod, he's actually found someone to fit the bill. He's hired a general manager in training. He was onboarded last month. Basically, my idea was when I'm no longer around, it'll be passed on to him. You can hear the emotion in Rod's voice, right? And mm-hmm. when I think about everything that he's built over the years, it, it, it's more than a business, right? It's it's a life, mm-hmm. it's a community, it's an ethos, an idea. And I'm wondering, like, how do you pass that on and still preserve what was created there? Hmm. I mean, I don't think there's an easy way about it. Rod's a unique guy, as we've all heard. And of course, things are going to change in the business and things will shift uh, when he's no longer at the helm. Fitz, you own a business. Have you thought about this? Like what, you know, how you hand off something that you've built to a new generation? Yeah, I mean, I think you have to. I don't think about it like day to day because I'm sort of not not quite at the stage Rod's at, but mm-hmm. um, yeah, you do have to think about it. I think one, you know, a lot of times like people build businesses and they sort of build them to sell. That's a big thing in American culture is like sell the business, get rid of it, you know, right? And like, mm-hmm. I think that sometimes if you've built something that is centered around an idea or centered around a value, that's a trickier thing because passing it off isn't necessarily guaranteed. Like a lot of times, like you could sell it and someone would just sort of gut it or do something really different. And, and it's quite painful for founders or, or an owner to see that happen to the thing they work so hard for. And mm-hmm. to do it well is a trick, right? Because 
you know, someone may say that they're interested in the same values, but like values are just a hypothesis until they're placed under financial strain. And mm. they'll like for a lot of people, values go out the window really quickly. And mm -hmm. that is a hard thing to convey forward. And it, it's a trick. So, yeah, you do think about it. You know, you think maybe I'll have a kid that would take this over one day or that could be a possibility or, you know, you know, you, you're looking you're looking for that because you know that eventually you're going to have to step away. And so, yeah, you're thinking about it for sure. Well, and even though it might shift a little bit, I think the beautiful thing about Rod's business is that he's been proving his values work mm -hmm. for so yeah. long, both financially and culturally. And so even though it's going to be impossible to keep the business exactly how he made it when he was in charge, Rod has, he's also learned a ton and he's put a lot of thought into this handoff. Well, it's basically it's on the job training, although I've done a series of, of retail management classes before for staff and customers. So we, we went through my, my classes, a retailing one, outdoor retailing 101 and, and 16 marketing tips, 17 things I've, I've learned uh, over the years. But uh, uh, it basically, it's, it's uh, uh, on the job training. And you just, just learn by doing it, which is how I've learned everything. Rod's new GM will shadow him for what I ascertain to be an indeterminate amount of time until he's got the gist of how the business works. Between all the gear transactions, payroll, hiring, outdoor expos, film screenings, special events and programs, handing off the business operation of Midwest Mountaineering is no small task. But even so, as Rod trains his new manager, he focuses most on imparting what has always mattered more than any business plan or marketing strategy. If people were outdoors more, they would be better people, is my belief. So this is what we can do in the outdoor industry to make the world better, is to get more people having fun outdoors. And that simple mission, inspired by a 1960s pegboard in the kitchen, is what Rod hopes to pass on to the next generation. Thank you, Rod, for sharing your story. Our stories come from friends, from friends of friends, and from you, our community. If you have a compelling idea for a guest or a story lead, please give us a shout. You can use the submission form on our website, dirtbagdiaries.com. This is today from Publish the Quest, Bradley Carter, Cloud9, and Brendan O'Connell. The tracks are courtesy of the artist Ort from Free Music Archive. Jacob Bain and Nice Koto composed our theme song. You can find links to the artists at the website, dirtbagdiaries.com. This episode was produced by Cordelia Zars, with additional help from Ashley Langholtz, Becca Cahal, and me, Fitz Cahal. Illustration and graphics by Walker Call. Becca Call is our executive producer. I'm Fitz Cahal, and you've been listening to the Dirtbag Diaries. Thanks for tuning in.